Welcome back to The Lives of Writers, a podcast presented by Autofocus, a literary publisher of artful autobiographical writing, which you can find today at autofocuslit.com or on Twitter and Instagram at autofocuslit. I am the publisher of Autofocus, Michael Wheaton. Today on the show, I talk with Susanna Q. Pratt. Susanna Q. Pratt is the author of More or Less, Essays from a Year of No Buying, which came out this year from Eastover Press. Her work has appeared previously in Literary Mama, Motherwell, Chicago Parent, Under the Gumtree, Essay Daily, The Week, and more. She lives in the Chicago area. All right, let's get to it. This is my conversation with Susanna Q. Pratt. I had just been feeling the weight of our things in this very sort of psychic and heavy way for the better part of a year. And I think, you know, I had just begun to sort of tiptoe into some of the minimalist literature and, you know, Marie Kondo was around and making her assessment of everybody's goods at that time. (laughs) She was just starting. And, And so I just started to think like, what if we tried this? What if we said, you know, let's not do this for a year and I sort of flew it by my husband, who was like, well, <laughs> why don't we talk to everybody about that? Um, and so I could tell it was going to take a real sales job. And in my mm-hmm. non-writing life, I'm a consultant. So I know how to use PowerPoint. <laughs> I know how to make a PowerPoint. Mm-hmm. And I, um, I did things like count up how many books we had, how many Tupperwares of Christmas ornaments are in my basement, you know, Tupperware boxes of Christmas ornaments, board games. Um, and so I made a PowerPoint that essentially had a quiz in the beginning, you know, how many books do you think we have? How many? And, uh, I talked about what I thought we would get out of it. And then I, I gave them some, um, places where they could make decisions. So, you know, like the rules of the experiment, you know, I said what we could think about it. If we wanted to still buy birthday gifts, we could still buy birthday gifts. So they did have a little say in it. Um, but at the end of it, they said, yes, I think based primarily on the idea that we could, if at any point, and we were just miserable with this whole experiment, we could just opt out like that. We were, <laughs> this was a self-imposed right. thing, you know? Mm-hmm. So, um, so I think that more than anything made them game to try. But then as I've explained to people, you know, the, the longer the year went on, the more invested you get in continuing because then you're like, well, we're doing it. Well, we can make it a year without buying it. So I think that helped too. Mm -hmm. Are you naturally just like a very organized person in your (laughs) normal life anyway, that you like to take inventory of things and, and compartmentalize things? I, I, the way you described doing the PowerPoint, like, I think this is someone who is probably very orderly in general and and knowledgeable about their stuff. Right. That's a great question. I, Probably I, I tend toward the organized end of the spectrum, but I would say maybe that's part of why I was feeling the weight of our things. It's possible, as you probably know, being a person in modern life, it's possible <laughs> to accumulate so many things that you can no longer impose order on them and you can't mm-hmm. find what you want to find. And so I think um, there's some of that, too, in my life. Mm-hmm. You mentioned, you know, like feeling oppressed by stuff as as part of the reason you wanted to do it. But I also admire that in the essays you're like in a way you're unclear of why you're really doing it like yeah. it's a- ambiguous like you you don't think you're necessarily going to find any answers um but there is a lot of it is the kind of pressure of like the things in your life and th- so that's something that, that that i relate to especially with um kids now but even even before yeah. kids i think right. 
I'd get to a point where kind of like you said, like when I can't order the things in my life or like when I feel like I can't hold in my head the things that I have, I start to get a little crazy yeah. <laughs> and like and like irritable, like being in a room and like I can't kind of settle myself. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's very <laughs> um, common. Yeah. And so, yeah, I like that early in the um, essays as well. It's, you know, one of the first essays, not the first, but one of the first is, OK, let's go. <laughs> Let's get rid of some stuff, yeah. um, you know, and you talk about kind of use and utility of things and and how the way that we buy, you know, we often buy inexpensive things we buy with <laughs> with what we can do or what we think we can do financially. And so we get the things that use their use or utility much faster due to cheap production. And so I was wondering, um, you know, like after you did this kind of experiment for a year not a ton concrete happens i think out of it like there it's a lot of questions and a lot of ambiguity but do you find that like now that you've changed how you buy things when you buy based on that kind of idea of of like cheap quality um or like more long-term durable quality i think that's really astute i think that's exactly what changed for us um and i'm i appreciate also that you could sense the complexity. I, I definitely try to explain to people, this isn't a wholehearted endorsement of minimalism. This is like, yeah. you know, we have a complicated relationship to our things. That's how we got into this mess, I think, to begin with. And so, um, yeah, I think when I the, when I consider the long-term change for our family, the way I describe it to people is to say two things. One, uh, I feel like we have more of a why versus why not approach to consumption. So before we buy something, I think all five of us at this point, I don't know if we articulate it in quite the same way, but I think there's some impulse in us now that there's some threshold we have to cross or pass where we say that, yeah, there's a good reason to buy this thing. Um, So that's one way. And the second, I think, is exactly what you just hit on, which is this notion of intentionality. So if I'm going to buy something now, I'd like it to go the distance with me. I'd like it to not be a disposable item that's kind of contributing to this yeah, you know, fast fashion or other kinds of accelerated consumption. I, I'd like it to be something beautiful that is going to enhance my space or my life in some way. And so I think oftentimes I do think if we buy because we're buying less, we would spend up on something or we would consider it more carefully and really go looking for exactly what we want. Uh, so I do think it just made us more intentional consumers. Yeah. And, um, you know, one of the essays, I think it might be a little later in the book, I can't exactly remember where you, you do talk about kind of like how much we accumulate and acquire with kids mm-hmm. <laughs> just and, and the random ways, like their things um, kind of like take over our lives and, and very quickly become garbage. Um, yeah. And it's something that, um, you know, I, I, I think about a lot, especially having like small kids. Yeah. Is, I was going to ask how old your kids are. Oh, they're um, five and three. Yeah, you're right um, in the thick of a plastic yeah. years. <laughs> yeah, and it's 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 kind of mind-boggling yeah. um to see just how like the way we meet their basic needs is with just so much garbage shaped into things <laughs> that go back I, to kind of being garbage and how much of it is bought new. Um, yeah. And, and how much we try to recycle. But then like, I mean, I've, I noticed like with kids stuff, you try to, you can give it away or you receive it from somebody once. And then like, it almost like, it's not even usable anymore. <laughs> or safety kids. standards change yeah, or yeah. Right. Things like that. Yeah. No, I think it's really, uh, 
a tricky time, those young years. So the essay you might be thinking of, I, I think is called Banished to the Basement, which is actually, or at least this is one essay that ties into what you're talking about. It's right in the beginning of the book, but it's this moment where my husband and I go down to clean out the basement, which is mm -hmm. the same one that gets that used actually. And mm -hmm. um, we find this plastic music table and I realized like there's things that I just, the, the shame of them, I didn't want to throw them out, but nobody was going to be able to use this. My kids right. hammered on it and spilled on it. And so we just put it in the basement, but for who and for what purpose, you know, just to sort of postpone or assuage our guilt of having mm -hmm. these plastic things. Um, so yeah, I, and I, I think, I mean, one thing I, one piece of feedback I get about the book that I feel like hugely uh, relieved about is that it, it doesn't seem to be guilt inducing for people. And oh, no. part yeah. of what I'm interested in, I think in the, as, as the consumer myself is just how often and frequently we're marketed to. So like when you have kids mm -hmm. that age, you know, you are sort of the, the messages, you will get them this car seat because it's the safest. And I know your sister-in-law had this other car seat, but this has the five point harness technology and you'll need it. <laughs> like there's this constant mm -hmm. um, messaging about why we need to consume and the importance of it. And then obviously the frequency of it. So, you'll, you know, planned obsolescence, like you need to yeah. get the, the best and the newest and greatest. That reminded me of something that too, that I um, kind of sparked from the book was <clears throat> thinking about how like companies kind of work us into these models of constant consumption and like they're the provider of it. So like the obvious example would be like Apple and how they made, you know, closed system and how, so it's like you and your family just all of a sudden get roped into this trajectory. Like you buy one thing or somebody in the family gets one thing and then like two of them have it. And then like everyone kind of has to match up and then you have to get the devices to match that. And then they, each in their turn go <laughs> obsolete yeah. or use their effectiveness. Um, yep. And you do a great job of making a really bleak situation not feel so bleak, I think, in the book. Um, because it, it is, it is, it does feel so much in the way that we're marketed to, like um, you bring up the idea of like manufactured versus like genuine yeah. desire. Yeah. And then the way companies have evolved to create systems that keep a consumer, you know, locked into a cycle for long periods of time. Um, I mean, it, it just, it feels like we're kind of trapped in, in the system, you know, kind of for, for better or worse. And you do find some joys <laughs> in it, which we'll talk about <laughs> in a little bit, but it does, it definitely feels a lot of the time, like we can think consciously and like try to do our little things maybe to help individual and like, therefore like global consumption, mm -hmm. but it's like the minute a child comes into this world with them, as we were just talking about, with them just comes a mass amount of shit. <laughs> like, yeah, totally. So much. And, just, so and, we much. and we're just trying to kind of process like our right. whole lives, like to get rid of and to attain, you know, what is like we think we're supposed to have at this time. Yeah. Yeah. I, that, when you were talking about the systems that are, you know, that we're just sort of caught up in that that essay called parsing desire is the one where i'm talking about manufactured mm -hmm. want versus sort of what i'm calling cultivated want mm -hmm. versus just genuine desire versus all of those kinds of desire versus need which is yeah, a whole other thing right? right and and the it was a really funny moment for me in the year when we got the you know the nordstrom's points whatever and i was <laughs> yeah. like oh we have points 
they're going to expire. <laughs> oh my gosh. We, we better go. We better go shopping. Mm-hmm. Like, and mm-hmm. then it has fascinated me that like, obviously the marketing professionals are genius. Like they have figured out how to trigger that right. urgency in me. And all that has to do really is get me in the store. Right. And then I, I will find something to desire and therefore purchase. Right. right and right. so it's just, it, it's, um, I think there are those kind of systems we're caught in that are marketing systems. But then I think there's other just larger sort of cultural meaning we assign to our things. And that I'm thinking here about the essay that's called Oh Crap, but it's about the swag that my <laughs> yeah, husband brings uh-huh. home from the, his industry <laughs> conference. That mm-hmm. was sort of interesting doing a little research for that essay on just the, I forget the number now, but it's some sort of huge industry, some billion dollar industry, like what they call corporate gifting, which is essentially mm-hmm. the creation of all the swag. And But that it's really a practice that's that's entrenched now for corporations not to have well this is outdated but like usb drives with their you right, know right, or like right. or tote bags or water bottles or mm-hmm. it it feels um they're like they'd somehow be lacking or in, in larger corporations you know executive level gifts or it's just a it's a whole big system that's developed and fed on itself and none of us really want that stuff yeah know? and it's like we're used to taking it <laughs> yeah exactly um, I was wondering too, like, you know, we mentioned the, you know, realizing just how much stuff comes along with like kids or like, you know, that being a huge vehicle to driving things in and out of your life, um, like uh, in terms of objects. Um, was there anything like you were surprised by during the year that you, you realized also kind of served that same function, like something that you didn't maybe realize was bringing in <laughs> and out more things into your life than than you originally Uh, thought? It's a good question. Yeah. Like what are the sources of our kind of our things? I I think one thing I realized um, it's a line in, I think in the essay, consider the lobster, which is that our sin was so not, so um, not so much active consumption as passive reception. So Mm. I think Mm -hmm. there is, um, you know, Evanston where I live um, has a lot of like sort of, ecologically minded people who are trying to do good things with the stuff they had. So there's a lot of passing on mm-hmm. and um, a lot of receiving. And then both my husband's mother and my mother live nearby. And um, so I just realized that people in our lives bring a lot of stuff into our lives and mm-hmm. uh, with the best of intentions, you know, my neighbor yeah. will show up and be like, you know, my kids outgrew these soccer cleats. Would you want them? Or my mom will bring over this you know, the set of bookends that she doesn't want anymore. So mm-hmm. I, and I think we did a lot of receiving and um, even though we didn't actively shut that down, you know, but I think people knew what we were doing with our experimental year. They stopped giving us stuff, uh-huh. you know, and that, that was uh, another source outside of direct consumption, but another kind of sneaky way that things were making themselves, you know, mm-hmm. getting themselves into our lives. And so, yeah. Yeah. It, in a way it kind of re- reminds me because we're relating in a way relating back to this like cycle that seems kind of like disastrous and like we can't get out of it. Part of that has to do with um, when you talk about like the glut of like choice that we have in our lives Mm -hmm. today and how like for anything you ever need, the variations in ways you can get it and companies you can get it from is 
um, you know, more harmful than, than good at times. And even, even like in a, di I mean, it's like this digitally too, right? I mean, like you just go on, yeah. you just go on Netflix or whatever, and you can have a form of mental paralysis. Spend your two hours <laughs> just, deciding what movie they, and now you have to go to bed. Yeah. You never watched a movie. Yes, yeah. It happens. <laughs> and you know, the, the choice is, is like, you know, how do we make, how do we make the choices to buy what we buy or consume what we consume. And then I think a lot of the times because of the glut of choice, we change our mind on the, on the thing we chose. And then we, we, mm -hmm. we might get it again <laughs> in this like, right. in this like other form and how like this like glut of choices could sometimes, you know, make us a little miserable in a way of not knowing what to get and then con con ma yeah. make us constantly try to reimagine what we should have done or the way we should have approached it and then it i think it, it kind of right. leads to more and more getting more and more and more and more you know as well i agree there's so i there i'm reminded of that essay that i have called mind to choose you know and, and what gave rise to the essay was i think this kind of painful juxtaposition because i had the new york times magazine and i was reading this jason diamond uh, article on the Bialy as the perfect breakfast food. And it was kind of just a Zen piece of writing. It was about how he just always has a Bialy and having no choice is a good thing. Mm -hmm. But the front cover of the magazine then is this, unfortunately for Jason Diamond, is this starving child, mm -hmm. the, uh, an up close photo of the starving child. And I, I had this like uh, moment where I was like, you know, how can we lament the amount of choice when there are people right. with no choice? Right. But on the other hand, you can't, um, reallocate choice it's not you know i can i can reallocate resource and but even that is hard to do directly uh, but i can't reallocate choice exactly and so that just sent me down this whole path of thinking about choice and and actually digging into some of the literature that i mean that's super rich literature you could probably write a book of essays on choice alone mm -hmm. but this this notion that you're talking about is in the choice literature um, and it's making a distinction between sort of pickers and choosers. And when you're choosing and you really have active choice, you have enough time to weigh your options and consider what's in line with your values or what you really need. Or um, when you have too many choices, you're a picker, you're reflexively, you just make a selection and keep going. And the pace at which modern life moves and marketing you know, efforts offer you things and digitally we can access things, we are by default pickers. We don't have time. To, and that's that kind of sense you're talking about. That's where we weave that um, experience deflated. Like we didn't make a decision that's a values-based decision or that's in tune with the things we want right. in our life. We just made a decision. So I think that's very real. And I, I think to me, um, choice as a whole, like I said, it's a giant sort of area that you could delve into and think more about is really, really interesting. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And yeah. And I'll say it too, in the intro, one thing I think you do mindfully is check the privilege of the, of the situation. Kind of, kind of, as you said, like me having too much stuff in my life is not my worst. <laughs> it's not my worst problem right. and it's not even like re would re register as a problem for many, many people in the world. And, and so we're just going to kind of do this <laughs> and, 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 yeah, and see, I, cause in a way, cause we can. Yeah. I, I think that's right. I, I still feel conflicted about that. I I'm so grateful that you, um, you know, took that in and other people have mentioned that to me too. It was really important to say that right up front in the book that choosing not to have is an exercise of privilege for sure. And I think if those of us who have don't start this process of the practice of 
like critically thinking about our consumption, you know, what will happen. So I think both things are true, but for sure this, you know, I, I'm trying to acknowledge throughout the book at different points that, yeah. But, you know, and yeah, it's sure it's a privileged position to be in, but it is an issue though, I, you know, and yeah. because what's at stake is, uh, you know, our, our very lives and the way we relate to ourselves and to each other and to the global world, like <laughs> conceptions right. a huge problem we're staring down. Obviously we're seeing the, right. the, the effects of it. So it is a real issue. Um, and there's, there's a, a, a couple lines in the book that really stood out to me as kind of really like shining a light on on what those issues are at least on like a, a human level and and one of them is just the very simple statement where you say i worry that our things make us numb and mm-hmm. i thought that was mm-hmm. such a simple and exact way to put it and i'd love to hear you talk a little bit about that idea of how or in what ways things can do that not that they always do but at what point and, yeah. and how does that happen oh that's such a good question so that as that essay consider the lobster is playing around with um, an eb white essay and then obviously like the mm-hmm. title is the david foster wallace mm-hmm. title but um but it in it the notion of the lobster you know eb white is um, preparing to move out of an, a new york apartment and he's just oh, he's kind of in this malaise that you and I are talking about. He's just overwhelmed by his stuff. And he's just it's called Goodbye to 48th Street. And um, and in a funny little detour the in the essay, he and his wife go to like the World's Fair. And the, I mean, it's a it's a funny little essay, but it's melancholy pretty much throughout. And toward the end, he just finds himself. So they're, they're getting ready to move and he's going to leave a lot of the stuff behind and um, he defines himself as, you know, sort of slightly less encrusted and, you know, without a shell, uh-huh. like a lobster without a sort of somebody who's like molted a mm-hmm. little bit, which is he leaves in this ambiguous place of both promise and vulnerability. Um, and I, I was really struck by that. And in that same essay, I have another line that like sort of put differently. Are we defined or confined by that mm-hmm. which we own? Mm-hmm. And that's that's what I think I'm trying to understand. You know, at some level, our stuff is part of our identity. It's part of our armor or our shell. Mm-hmm. And that can be a good, it can be a good way of coming through the world of understanding. Who, but then too much stuff and too much processing of our stuff. And we become self and stuff focused and enclosed. And instead of being able to reach out to the other or experience the other mm-hmm. or the pain of the other or the joy of the other, we're just wrapped in this shell of our stuff. So I think that um, that's where this idea of numbness, like it's, you can reach some critical point of stuff in your life where you're just encased in it and the processing of it and subtly and sort of insidiously, it begins to replace relationship or connection mm-hmm. or community because you're attending to your things. And that's when that numbing I think really yeah. starts to happen. Yeah. And the, the other, the kind of question I wrote down, which you have been articulating uh, the way you say it is like, are my goods humanizing and connecting me to others or layers of insulation from, you know, the big bad world. I don't, I didn't write down the exact quote, but, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, you got but, but you know, and that was, that was, um, I think, I think that's such a pivotal question. Cause I think that that ambiguity and kind of ambiguousness there is underneath the whole collection. You know, I think part of the reason you say like people, it's a book that <laughs> doesn't make you feel guilty, <laughs> even though it's, it could, it's because you're not 
there to take the take, right? You're you're there to just think about these things and to read on the different concepts and to process them and filter them through your life and and just engage <laughs> kind of engage yeah. the system and then kind of go from there. Well, I um thank you for saying that because that was my hope that you know like I said earlier this is a complex take on our things and there are certain essays in the book that um, celebrate our stuff. Mm-hmm. And it's it sort of, I, it, the book doesn't, it doesn't have a chronological structure because right. it isn't memoir. But if I had to say it had a structure, I would, I would loosely characterize the first half of the essays as diagnostic. They're trying, they're me trying to figure out what the problems are. Mm-hmm. And the second half of the essays, I, I described to somebody as footholds, you know, they're just ways we could begin to climb out. They're not solutions far from it. Right. Uh, but there's an essay right in the center called footprint. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's uh, sort of this pivot point, I think, you know, it's, it's an essay in which we find out that my youngest son has a hole in his shoe. Mm-hmm. We didn't know he had a hole in his shoe and um, he had told us and he wants to buy basketball shoes. And we had been actually, that's about halfway through the year or two. So chronologically, mm-hmm. it was a turning point. Um, and we'd been pretty good. We hadn't really needed to buy things at that point, um, but we decided to buy Obviously, we decided my emotions. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> and um, and that essay is a little bit uh, me sort of saying like, my, uh, consumption is synonymous with modern life. Like we, you cannot zero out right. all your consumption. You and and in so doing, if you did that, you would sort of zero out people's lives. Yeah. Um, so anyway, I, I think it is a it's a really interesting puzzle like to find the route to consumption or the kind of consumption that you can live with that isn't harmful to the earth or to the other, but that also is just a fact of modern life. It's part of who we are, Mm -hmm. you know, and, and finding that middle way is not easy. Yeah. And, um, kids grow out of shoes. (laughs) Especially my children. They're unduly tall. (laughs) Oh yeah. They grow out of shoes a lot. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And so, um, yeah. And I think what you'd say in that essay is, um, that like, zero sum consumption is always a, a great goal but it kind of pushes a form of like nihilism <laughs> like a, re- yeah. a rejection of right. basically who we are because consumption is innate to being a, a, yeah, a human exactly. person it's it's what we do it is now you know it wasn't always the human condition but i think we are so um you know we're in a place now where it is part of the human condition and i think it, we single-handedly can't back out of this, you know, so then how do you exist in it is really the question. Mm. Yeah. And, and so we mentioned, you know, there are the parts where objects in our lives are celebrated, um, or in ways that they positively are self-expressive in a way. And so, you know, there, there are always those little objects in our lives that hold special meaning. Like you also bring up, um, you know, like objects is like access to memory. You bring up, you know, mm-hmm. how your father mm-hmm. had passed in a plane crash and like the way that yeah. your children know him are through these remaining objects that mm-hmm. you had. Mm-hmm. Um, so I was wondering if, you know, like now in your current life, you know, even years past the book, if when you think of the objects that bring you maybe the most joy, you know, in your house, and I, I'm putting you on the spot, so I'm sure you'll think back and be like, oh, it was, re- I didn't say I this. Told him this. Yeah. yeah. Um, but, you know, just <laughs> off the top of your head now, what are some of the objects, you know, in your life that bring you the most joy? 
mean, I like to cook. And so there are certain things in my kitchen that uh, are not fancy, um, but they're just like really satisfying and they get the job done. Like a certain spatula I love. But just, <laughs> so there's, there's objects I think that have a totally great snug fit with their utility like, yeah. and they just make me happy because they're satisfying. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, I, I mean, there's the, the obvious one that's popping in my mind is the one that I wrote the essay about the, alarm clock Mm -hmm. you know i have this beloved alarm clock that i um i think is really dear to me i think the book in general gave me a higher um help help me put a higher value on aesthetically pleasing things Hmm. i mean you can see a little behind me (laughs) we have a lot of art in my house Mm -hmm. and uh i i've always appreciated the art in our house but more so now and the other objects that are in our house that are um artful in their way you know that are that um, like I'll just say again, like a set of bookends on my shelf that I think are really pretty or something that I I have come to value some of those things more just because I see the way they sort of contribute to our, I don't know, the joy of our life. Yeah. And now I am sounding like Marie Kondo. <laughs> <laughs> but, yes. But I think, yeah. Um, you know, it makes me think that the more that we start paring down the objects of in our lives and the more we make up practice out of it, the more meaning those things that remain take on. And so like that's, (laughs) if your objects don't hold meaning to you, (laughs) I guess that is very Marie Kondo, right? Like then, you know, do you, do you really need them? And then by process of getting rid of those things, the things that were meaningful become extra meaningful. I think that's so true, but I think the trick is also to let yourself believe that less is meaningful than you think. Mm. I think we do think, you know, yeah. um, actually, Ann Patchett, I'm, and I'm sure people listening to this are reading her collection of essays now, which have a lot of her no shopping and no buying essays. And she's pretty articulate about that. Like the idea that, uh, I mean, she's part of what emboldened me because mm-hmm. that, that one no shopping essay came out in 2017. Like, you'll be okay. A lot of what you think matters <laughs> right. and you think you're going to want to hold again and touch mm-hmm. again. And mm, no, you won't even remember when it goes, you know? And I, so I think, again, it's it's like, how do you figure out what is really dear and important by paring down? And, and part of that first step in the process is just saying a lot is not really dear and important yeah. or as important as we think it is. Mm-hmm. It's also interesting to me how like our kind of increasingly digitized world provides us with fewer tangible experiences, I guess, like so many tangible experiences we used to have get filtered into the one tangible experience of like using your phone. Mm -hmm. So like you're having Mm -hmm. this, you're like having the same tangible experience all the time, holding the phone, clicking the buttons to access music or or yeah. whatever, or, or your clock, for instance, an alarm clock. Oh, I love that. You know? yeah, yeah. And, and so like these takes the place. And so like our we, normal tangible experience is often digital for a, a variety of things. Um, yep. Not to say the same thing a million times, but um, <laughs> I wonder sometimes if that makes my relationship to objects more meaningful or like less meaningful. And I don't know that I necessarily have an answer to that because one thing like I would think is like as you know, I do things more digital that I like maybe would cherish like my physical books more or something like that. But it's like, Mm -hmm. I don't. And oddly enough, I think I cherish my physical books less than I ever did because I'm like, I don't know, like maybe reading so much on my phone. 
Like you, I, yeah. I like you think it make me appreciate it more, but it almost has been like, well, I guess these aren't important. Even <laughs> even though some of them yeah. are still very meaningful to me, I don't know exactly how how to parse it. Yeah, that's so interesting. I had never considered the relationship between this kind of like uh, less dimensionality to our experiences and our things. Um, I will say this is what is connecting for me and what you're saying, which is that when people talk about the losses and gains of the year and what we got and the, the sort of shorthand way I have of, of talking about it is sort of less consuming equals more creation and more community. Um, and so on the creation side, I, I think that less consuming um, and that also would entail maybe consuming things digitally. Um, it, it does leave space for a kind of sort of tangible or tactile or like olfactory or, you know, visual, different visual experience of the world that is part of living a good life. Mm -hmm. And so I think that there is, um, when I think about our relationship to our things, I, I do appreciate, maybe this is going back to what I was saying about art too, things that have taken, that are artisan created or that have taken time to create or that I, I'm sort of aware of these processes that are outside the cycle of consumption. Um, and where, where I have a friend who's a ceramicist and she makes mugs and they're beautiful. And I, I, I enjoy holding those mugs in a, in a way mm -hmm. because they're just like a different experience. And, and so I think there is that, um, that maybe for me, if I, if I had to think about what you're saying is like, as we kind of filter more and more, more of our experience through screen and it's mediated digitally, I do have this heightened uh, affection for um, crafted things. Maybe also my books too, though, which doesn't <laughs> fit. <laughs> I still like my hardcover, hard copy mm -hmm. books. <laughs> I used to be a, I used to say I was a, a pro hardcover, anti-dust jacket. I like my book, my new books to look really old. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> for some, really and then funny. oddly enough, like I have trouble reading hardbacks now because i don't know i, I, yeah. I kind of prefer paperbacks now um yeah because i think part of it's because i since i've started doing the the podcast I, I i have so many books that i don't choose necessarily always which ones i read digitally and which ones i read on uh, on like physically yeah. and so i'm like having this experience where like s some books that i absolutely adore like i've never actually touched them and it's yeah. And some books that it's like, yeah, that I don't necessarily feel anything particularly for, like I have them and they're objects in my house and like, I don't know how to <laughs> like, yeah, make it like differentiate. Yeah. It's like, it's like people in zoom now. Yeah. <laughs> There's whole people I have relationships right. with that I've never met in person. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Or, or yeah, any form of social media, I suppose it's like that as well yeah, right, for right. the most part. Um, so, you know, <laughs> we've talked all about the book, but I'd love to kind of go back to childhood and where you started getting an interest in reading and writing, you know, when you decided you were going to pursue it more and then all this leading to mm -hmm. kind of writing this book. Yeah, I'm happy to tell the story because I don't have a an MFA. I don't have maybe a traditional path to having a book. Oh, is there? I don't yeah. know. There's a traditional <laughs> path to having a book. But um, yeah, so if you go all the way back to my childhood, I uh, was a huge reader. I read, I, I really liked books by and about women. So I read a lot of biographies. And I think I always had like a nonfiction bent, even though I wouldn't have known that as right, a kid. Right. But I read a lot of like biographies of American women, uh -huh. like Harriet Tubman and Julia Gordon Lowe, mm -hmm. like all, you know, the ones in the library. Um, and then I had a lovely early affirmation of like self as writer in second grade. Yeah. I won the young author's contest. <laughs> and, 
then one again in fifth grade. And, and then your fate was um, sealed. <laughs> yes, I, I was set upon my path yeah. to authorhood. Um, I wish. No, I, so um, I felt like I loved writing and that somebody else liked the things I wrote. Mm-hmm. So that those are two important dimensions to ultimately being a published writer, right? But, um, and I was an English major in college. And there I wrote a senior thesis on women's personal narrative mm-hmm. and had a really fascinating experience reading the journals of um, a wife of one of the college presidents from the 1800s. Um, they had her journals in special collections. No one had ever read them. Cool. And so I, I read her journals and then I actually, this is so interesting. It was total foreshadowing to the sort of um, disclosure age that we're in. So this is all, this would really date me now, but you know, I went to college, email was just a brand new thing. <laughs> so there was certainly no social media mm-hmm. or anything. So I asked, I was comparing journaling as an art form. So I asked women if they would be willing to submit a page of their journal and anonymously in a box that I left in a, in the women's study center. Yeah. and the women at my college filled this box with samples from their journals, which is so telling, right? It it totally spoke to this impulse that now is very public impulse that we see everywhere. People want to talk about that. So I've always been interested in that kind of personal narrative too, I think, I guess is where I'm going with that one. Um, But then I went on to a a different professional life. I have a social work degree Mm. and I do consulting with nonprofit and and philanthropic organizations and had a family and, but just kept writing on the side. And I met a woman who was a writing coach. She was actually in the co-working space that I was using as a consultant. Mm -hmm. And I was asking her about it. And I, she said, well, show me something you have written. So I brought her something and she asked this question that like, to this day, I'm like, thank goodness. She said, oh, is there more about like, the and I was like, I like so much more. I, I, I hadn't realized that I had been accumulating mm. all this writing, just sort of, I don't know, just jotting things down. And most of it was on computer. My mm-hmm. most of it was just little things. And I would have just saved it to some obscure file on my hard drive, you know, yeah. and, but I hadn't, nobody had ever suggested that I, I was accumulating writing or that I, you know, like, I, I don't know. I just never had thought about it in that way. Um, and so then I started to sort of t- take some of these things and dust them off and submit them to literary mm-hmm. magazines. And I had some success with that. Um, but I, d- I never thought that I was on the road to a book. Mm-hmm. I didn't, I just certainly didn't and still don't feel like I have a novel, you know, a latent <laughs> novel in me or something <laughs> like I'm not, I'm not that creative. I don't think sadly, but, um, so I guess I just didn't think I had a book. And then I, I should say one other little part of the story is that um, during the time my husband was in graduate school, I was, we were living together and I was just working different jobs, mm-hmm. but I did um, audit uh, a class in the English department of writing class. Uh-huh. And that's when I also understood there was a genre called creative nonfiction. Uh-huh. <laughs> so this was like in the early 2000s, mm-hmm. which I just didn't know. Right. I, I don't think I had a language for the kind of writing I was doing. So that helped too. Cause then I was like, Oh, I see where, so when I got ready to start submitting some of these pieces, then I was like, Oh, I, I understand. I, I fit in this, like I'm either essay or personal narrative right. or, you know, which I didn't, Fully. It sounds funny now because it's such a well-developed genre right. and that, you know, so many great journals accept this kind of writing. But anyway, um, fast forward to the idea that we started the year of no buying with, and that had zero, I had zero intention of writing about it. Oh, really? It really was, 
Yeah, oh yeah. No, it was not um in any way. No, I had just intention of cleaning out our garage. Yeah. <laughs> that was it. Of like was spending less time at Home Depot. But I um I it was like a muse, you know, yeah. the whole year. Like every just the things. I mean, this is the lovely thing about any of these experiments. Like when you step outside your daily life, even I think this is the, to, you know, to recommend meditation or anything, right? When you stop to contemplate, like so things become so much clearer. Right. So then, you know, all the things that we, I ended up writing about in the book were just things that as I was not buying, I was like, oh yeah, like what does happen to our stuff after I take it to the dump? Mm-hmm. What does happen, you know, like, and um, so then I, I kind of, over the course of the end of that year and into 2019, I thought, oh, I maybe I have a book. And um, they needed work, but I didn't think I could do anything more with them. I was, you know, I knew they needed, but I felt tired. And mm-hmm. but the pandemic happened, and it just so happened. And I will like recommend them by name. I, I joined a program called More to the Story, mm-hmm. and at the re- it's run by a woman named Jana Marin who edited a literary journal. That I had been published in. So I was sort of getting her emails and the emails were like, Hey, you, you with the non, the unfinished <laughs> manuscript, what's your problem? Why don't you have a book? Um, and it, so it was the pandemic and I signed on for her program, which was virtual mm-hmm. and sort of just a writing group. And, you know, you sort of have an opportunity to have your manuscript read at three different times during the year. And, it, and but it's not a workshop. It was really just a chance for women mm-hmm. to get their nonfiction manuscripts done. And so I did. And, and the end of the year, I had a manuscript mm-hmm. that I wouldn't have had otherwise without her program for sure. Cool. And yeah. And so the epilogue is re- <laughs> reflecting on, um, the pandemic. Yeah. So, um, before I read the book, I was like, Oh, I know I, when I saw that the essays are, were from like 2018, or at least kind of taking place in 2018, I was like, oh, uh, I'd be really interesting to hear about, you know, what happened uh, in kind of the lockdown yeah. part, you know, thinking about scarcity and, and hoarding, um, all the shipping and buying <laughs> um, yeah. online. And um, and then it was nice because I got to the epilogue in there <laughs> and there it was. Yeah, your dreams were realized. Yeah. Um, so I was wondering for people not familiar with the book yet, if you could talk a little bit about going from <laughs> this experiment uh, into a, a completely, you know, different situation where all of a sudden, like, at least, I guess, in person, limited to the essentials, which is kind of what you were doing, except the big difference is online shopping still going on and people are hoarding all yeah. sorts of stuff and, and objects are becoming scarce and people are scared. Right. Anyway, right, right. Yeah, if you could talk a little bit about yeah. that. Yeah, I think the, the pandemic was a complex time. I, I think a lot was going on in terms of consumption. So, mm-hmm. You know, in the one level, there was this shutdown and we're all in our homes. And so there's this kind of, like you said, the scarcity and get the toilet paper and, buy, you know. Um, but then I think there was this sort of need for the dopamine hit of Amazon arriving mm-hmm. at your doorstep, right? Like you're just needing to have some, and also being in your home and dwelling and saying, like, why have we never replaced that <laughs> window shade? It's terrible. You know, it's ripped. Why don't, like, go online and order? You're like, you're in there yeah. every day now looking at your window shade. So, mm-hmm. um, so I think that happened. You know, in our town, it's a a very small business driven economy. It's got a rich downtown life. And um, there was a lot of messaging about consumption as civic acts in our town. Mm -hmm. You know, shop local. What do you want to see standing when the pandemic ends? Mm -hmm. You know, make sure. And that was some of that was restaurants. But some of that was about patronized little boutiques. Our independent bookstore had a 
delivery system, you know, pick up outside or deliver to your house and drop off. But like, so there was a lot of um, messaging that, you know, consume to consume is to support the economy, to support the community. Mm -hmm. So I just think it was a, it intensified like everything, right? Yeah. (laughs) Like the way the pandemic did with any kind of disparity or any, it intensified a lot of the dynamics around consumption. Um, And ultimately, and I think a testament to how, oriented toward consuming we are consumption went up right it went like our overall consumption and certainly online sales went up yeah. <laughs> but our overall consumption um we did more consuming than than we do normally mm-hmm. so i i mean we started buying things again as yeah. i end up saying in the epilogue although i, I hopefully it doesn't come as a shock to anybody yeah. because a lot of the book <laughs> is just about wrestling you know with yeah. all consumption um but i also think the pandemic did elevate the fact that we need other things besides consuming. Like it ultimately wasn't fulfilling to just stay in our houses and wait for Amazon to come because (laughs) we are back out in grocery stores. We are with each other. And that's, that's sort of where I net out. Like there, we do have a need to be with one another, this creation and community, these pieces Mm -hmm. of our, our psyche and and the way we're built and the way we relate to one another. And this notion of a good life, like I said earlier, it involves kind of a, a connection, a human embodied connection with the other and uh, a chance to create. And um, so I don't think consumption is going to carry the day ultimately. How about that for a hopeful <laughs> take on the pandemic? Yeah, right. <laughs> but, um, yeah. And as we were kind of talking about that, I was thinking about when we were talking about those, you know, the companies that get us involved in these consumption cycles. I mean, there's Amazon too, right? Like the way that they run the business is like, especially in the pandemic, it was just like the easiest way to do it. Every single, yeah. the easiest and the fastest and the cheapest and like. And the, and the safest at the time, yeah, right? right? And it was like, my God, we're just like, we're not just stuck with this. Like we're feeding it. <laughs> it's getting, I know. I know. it's bigger and, <laughs> and badder and, I like, know. and we're more reliant. It's, yeah, it, it's pretty, it, it's, I mean, it's, <laughs> it's pretty intense. Like this is, these are like, we just belong to these systems now. And, you know, you know, like you said, I, Hopefully, right? Like we've learned that the meaning is outside. <laughs> the meaning is all outside yeah. of those things. But it does take a, a conscious act of will. It takes a conscious, a conscious recommitting. And you know, there's an essay toward the end of the book before the epilogue, but where it, it's talking about Thoreau and mm-hmm. kind of like yeah. how despicable he is in some <laughs> ways, you know, but how also he and some others who have followed in that tradition of self-reliance you know, um, that they really target a path toward this intentional life, toward choosing, thinking about what we're choosing. And yeah. Yeah. Well, what are you working on now? I mean, are you, are you working on any new books? Now you got one out, are you going to try to keep going or just kind of casually writing? No, I have a new, another idea that's captured my imagination, but I find it really tricky to write about, but, um, I was so interested in what you were saying about books and objects and your experiences because I'm writing about nostalgia, oh, cool. which like me and 10,000 other people yeah. already. <laughs> me too. But I am, oh, well, good. We can all share our books on nostalgia. Oh, but go. that's a separate conversation mm-hmm, to have. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I am, um, I'm really interested in when nostalgia may be pointing us toward a real loss, like when you can clear away sort of mm-hmm. the gauzy parts of it when it is. Um, and, I, and so I'm writing around that idea now. I, I find it again. I mean, this is another topic where I'm pretty cognizant of writing from a position of privilege, mm-hmm. and so that sometimes 
it trips me up and thinking like, what can we be nostalgic for? Should we be nostalgic for? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I'm just kind of messing around with all that in my mind. <laughs> That's my conversation with Susanna Pratt. You can check out her book, More or Less, Essays from a Year of No Buying from Eastover Press. And as always, you can check out what's going on with Autofocus Books at autofocuslit.com books. And that's it. Thanks for listening. Until next time.